Brothers and sisters in recovery, mental health champions, and welcome to 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Heimerman, and let's be upfront about this. I'm not a licensed healthcare professional, not a doctor, not a counselor. No, I'm a guy with 974 days of sobriety, and I'm a guy with the gumption to put my story out there. Folks, I've got one hell of a guest for you. I've got my fellow Still I Run ambassador, Dave Scarpello. Dave has seen some shit, man. He's been through a ton of trauma. He's been through back surgeries. He suffers chronic pain, PTSD. He's been caught in crossfire in in the uh, hood of Philadelphia growing up. This guy has seen some stuff, yet he's here today to share his exuberant energy, his joie de vie, his eternal optimism, and his sense of gratitude. I'm so grateful today for joining me on the podcast, and as always, I'm so grateful to have all of y'all along for the ride. I'm looking out the window, and yep, true to form, it's a beautiful day to get our 40,000 steps in. So let's get it. So it is Monday, January 17th, better known as Martin Luther King Day. And a few days ago, I had the utmost privilege of interviewing Dave Scarpello. And what what a perfect morning to sort of reflect on this because holy buckets, am I privileged? No, I'm a middle-aged white guy. I've got a, you know, a beautiful family who's treated well just because of the color of our skin. I'm blessed to have, you know, a wife and two children who are downstairs and, you know, I have the privilege of celebrating this holiday with them and and acknowledging the incredible odds that have been stacked against people of color and people in marginalized communities, yet people who have stepped up over and over again and refused to be knocked down. To me, that's, (laughs) it's beyond inspiring. I've never lived without a roof over my head. I've never had to go hungry and now don't get me wrong. Like we don't have a lavish lifestyle for many years. You know, we've lived paycheck to paycheck and just, and you know, money has been an eternal stressor, but I was never without a safety net. Like even during my college and post-college years, if I got into a pinch, I could just pick up the phone, call my folks and, and, and they could, they could help me out. Folks, Dave Scarpello didn't have anybody to call. This is a guy who suffered more trauma in his childhood than anybody should have to endure. Um, he, he was adopted, which you know, as you grow older, becomes its own sense of trauma. He's been, he's been assaulted in armed robberies multiple times. He's been hit by a car, by a drunk driver. He's been told that he would never walk again. This guy has had so many opportunities to become angry and disenfranchised and Yet, somehow, (laughs) he's an extraordinary dude. He is an absolute beacon of hope and gratitude and inspiration. And, you know, Dave said something to me that I often lose track of because I asked him, I was like, you know, hurt people hurt people. How did you end up being such a good egg, you know, such an amazing dude? And he said, you know, you don't miss what you never had or that you, you never knew what it was, you know, for him. He never knew what a stable household was. He never knew what a safe neighborhood was or quality schools or good mentors. This guy to do it on his own, man. And as you listen to his story, I mean, there's a point where he was scraping $2 and change together just to make sure that he could put a little bit of food in his belly and survive. This guy has survived life for many, many years. During our conversation, I mean, there's a part there's a point where he breaks down and cries. And there were so many times when my eyes were welling up with tears when he talked about like, he's no longer in survival mode, whether it be you know his own personal commitment and dedication and eternal hope or the love of his life, convincing him 
that he is strong and that he is worthy of good things. Dave finally got a job for the first time in decades last year. Got a job working in the packing operations for Athletic Brewing Company, which, you know, is a, it's an industry, the non-alcoholic beverage company. It's an industry that's close to my heart. And he's sober as well. So it's, it's obvious. as he put it, it's his dream job. And then after fighting tooth and fucking nail to get that job, he finally got it. And he posted something on Instagram last week that absolutely stopped me in my tracks and, and just sent a shiver down my spine. He posted a picture. You should follow him on Instagram. It's Dave Scarpello. Just how it sounds. No spaces, no underscores. Check out his post from last week of his utensil container. He posted a gratitude picture of this utensil container because up until about six months ago, he didn't have his own utensils. He didn't have his own home. He was just holding on one day at a time. He's also posted about his car because... You know, dude's got to get to work, right? He scraped together enough cash and enough credit to to get, I believe it's a 2008 Santa Fe. And to him, there is no like greater like (laughs) luxury and sign of that he's made it than the fact that he's got heated seats. (laughs) Which thank God that he has this now because I mean, we've all seen what's happening on the East Coast. You know, he lives in a, he lives in in Connecticut where they're just being buried on a weekly basis by a shitload of snow. The fact that Dave has arrived and he's leveraging all of his pain to show people how incredible life is and that none of us are beyond redemption and beyond repair. I don't know. This was this is one of the great privileges of my life to meet and chat with Dave Scarpello. Now, before we delve into the conversation, I want to take a moment and talk about a partner of the podcast, DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. It's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. My friend Ron Parch and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email DUIBHS at gmail.com. All right, and with that, get your tissues, folks. This is my conversation with who I now consider a very dear friend. Dave Scarpello. I saw you had to resort to the treadmill. How are you guys doing out there? But it's different. Like, so I'm from Philly and I'm only like three and a half, four hours north. And it's basically around the same temperature, but for some reason it's cold. Like, 37 degrees here is colder than 37 degrees in Philly. I can't explain it, but it's different and I don't like it. And I don't like it. <laughs> it's more of like a biting cold. Yeah. Like it hurts your face kind of cold. Yeah. I think it's actually because we're right on Long Island Sound. So you got extra winds here that we, we don't have in Philly. Yeah. Gotcha. But you still got it in. You still, you did like 18 miles on the treadmill. How does, yeah. how does one do that? <laughs> so I put on uh, like disco music and watch soccer because soccer has no commercial breaks, oh. nothing. So I just will park myself in front of the, cha- the TV that's showing a soccer game 
don't listen to it. I just watch it and I just go. Was it a match that you cared about? Did you have like a vested interest or was it just a random match that was on? No, it was just like, I think it was like an African cup. It was like Senegal versus Mali. Like, I, But it's a beautiful game, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I'm a soccer fanatic, so. And former players, all around soccer lovers. So I can watch any game, but it was just what was on. What what exactly are you training up for right now? You got a? Do you have an actual race on the calendar? Uh, I think the next actual race I have is Hartford Marathon, but that's not till October. Okay, so you're just like yeah, I know. Everybody's like, "What are you training for?" I'm like, "Life." <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Life, like, happiness, and health. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's my it's my medicine. Like I can get on the treadmill for and run for eighteen miles because I can just zone out. It's like I get this zen. You know, the running helps me because a lot of people that that like peace and serenity and calmness that they find in like sitting still and meditating drives me nuts. <laughs> so like I get my serenity through movement. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I, and that's why you'll see me like, Oh, I ran for 31 miles today. <laughs> why did you do that? I, I don't know. Cause I could, we all find our medicine and our, and our peace and our calm in different places. And yeah. I've been, I've been trying to do the, like the traditional meditation more and it's, and it's working, but it it's freaking hard to just sit in one place. Yeah. It, it's extra hard for me because I have PTSD. So I'm like, wait, not have on it, not on have on these shoes and close my eyes. The, oh, there's a deal breaker right there. <laughs> you know? I I knew we were. I was going to bring that up at some point. Like I know you have suffered some trauma, man, from your from your brief bio on the Still I Run website, and I'm excited to talk with you about Still I Run since I just joined as an ambassador this year, and I'm, and I'm fired up about it. Yeah, congrats, it's awesome. Cheers, I'm stoked. Uh, so in 2003. You're hit by a drunk driver. At some point, you were assaulted in an armed robbery. Is the PTSD stemming from those incidents? And you know, I wanted to get into more details about those. But is am I kind of connecting the dots? Is that what that stems from? Um, there's there's some of the dots in a long in a, like a long. There are like one or two uh, branches of PTSD tree. Yeah. Um. So my official diagnosis came in 1992 which is when I was assaulted during an armed robbery. Okay. And I was 26 years old in perfect health. Ne you know, never had a back problem. Um, but I ended up having an emergency back surgery two weeks later for a herniated disc. Okay. And then the disc re-herniated and I had surgery again in 94. And then because I was young and healthy, I overhealed. Okay. So the scar tissue took the place of the herniation. So I basically had a third herniation, but it was a herniation, like a slip, like the the scar tissue invaded where it shouldn't have. So then it pushed the pressure back on my sciatica. So they had to go in a third time just to remove excess scar tissue. Uh, and then that left me, well, from 92, left me partially disabled. And because of the young, um, getting robbed during the, uh, I mean, yeah, assaulted during the armed robbery. That's when I got the official diagnosis. But it, was, like, it wasn't the first time um, somebody like stuck a gun to my face or I'd been, like I've never been shot, but I've been, you know, caught in crossfire, shot at. Um, I was pretty severely physically and mentally abused as a kid. So I pretty much now looking back and, and with the uh, mental health professionals, like, dude, you've had PTSD your entire life. Like you suffered severe childhood trauma. And then I always tell people, I'm like, ah, the difference between me and most of my friends that I grew up with is only that I have a diagnosis of PTSD. They all have it too. I know they do in one form or another because, um, I lost count north of a hundred how many funerals I had been to for friends that had been murdered. Not to them, I had friends die from getting yeah. you know, suicide, hit, hit by a car, but just from being murdered in Philadelphia 
like literally, I don't know how many, and you can't experience that and not have PTSD. Yeah. Where, like what part of Philly did you grow up in? So I grew up in Germantown. I don't know if you're familiar with Philadelphia at all. Not at all whatsoever, but I've got some listeners in Philadelphia who, who could probably say, oh, I know that area. Oh, yeah. Trust me, when when the Philly people hear this, like, oh, he's from G-Town. Yeah, the, it makes sense that he's been to, like, 100. Yeah, it's a, it, it's one of those things where, like, Germantown is, like, the hood. It, like, there's a lot of bad things, and you only hear about all the bad things that happen in Germantown. But it's there's also a lot of good that comes from there, but you don't hear about it. There's this trend right now in journalism. Uh, you know, I was a newspaper man for many years, and in like my new incarnation of my career, I, I've covered media practices quite a bit. And there is a movement toward because the media perpetuates it in terms of only reporting on crime and only reporting on murder rates and stuff. When you have these rich cultures, the art, these the arts, the the close uh, bonds in those communities. So I can tell you that there is a movement toward covering those communities holistically, but like everything else we're going through as a society, <laughs> there's a lot of ground to make up in terms of doing the job right and, and showing yeah. all of uh, all, the entire spectrum of a community. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, you're skeptical and rightfully so, whether we're talking about the media or, or, or the medical community, it's the treatment of marginalized communities like generation after generation. So no, I, I totally get it. I'd be skeptical too. Yeah, and, and so Germantown is probably 90 to 95% African-American. So, um, and has been, you know, my entire life. So I... I've seen how the media and the police treat the neighborhood because it's a community of people of color. And I just don't see that. I mean, maybe a little bit, but not, not enough. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're ever going to reach a day where the media exclusively covers the bright spots of communities. But I'd like to hope that like with everything else, I hope we're making just like incre right. incremental strides. But now, you know, the, the, the old saying is that hurt people hurt people. And you went through a lot of shit. You know, a lot of people hurt you. You were put into a lot of scarring and traumatizing situations. Yeah. I guess what I'm wondering is like, how did you not, how did you not end up in that trap? Because here you are today as an extremely compassionate person, a very real person who is very open about your experiences with the hopes of bringing attention to mental illness and and getting after that stigma how, how did you not get caught in that trap was there a turning point or something or someone that happened to you um no i think it was knowing that it felt terrible to be in that situation and not understanding how one human being could treat another human being that way and and when i would hear like oh uh, people grow up and then they continue the cycle i'm like that's to me, that's completely counterintuitive. Like if something bad happened to you, you would not do it to someone else to end it. And I guess, and I appreciate you saying that I have compassion. Um, I, I think it's just like, I don't go out of my way to be compassionate. I just know that hurt and that pain. And if I see somebody else in it and I have the ability to, to lessen it, then why not? Because I wish I would have had someone there to do that for me. Because what, like, I can I can remember, and this is so messed up looking back that a child has to have these thoughts. But when I'm I'm nine years old, I'm in fourth grade, and I just was like, no one loves me. I'm trapped. Like I, I was a kid that ran away all the time. I was always in trouble in school and. Back then, like, you couldn't say, like, oh, things are bad at home. They were like, well, if they're bad at home, it's because you're bad. Um, and I was always the, mm. the pro I was the problem child. I was the kid with the anger management issues. And, and I'm, I don't know how on a conscious level, but I'm sure somewhere it goes into the whole gumbo of my crazy life is that I was adopted when I was six weeks old. So I didn't 
like grow up with, you know, like a biological family. I mean, I had the same parents from the time I can remember. But I, I think when you're, no matter how well you handle it, I think when you're adopted, there's always that, like, was I not good enough? Like, what was wrong with me? So now, as an adult, I, I see it completely differently. Like, I'm like, you're 15 years old. You're unmarried. You're, we're in, you know, West Philly, and, and you're Catholic, and that's frowned upon. And so, you, you know, my biological mother was basically a child herself. And, like, what, what other options did she have, to be honest? To, I, I can't put myself in her situation, but to give up a child, to give it the opportunity to have a better life, that, like, how can anything be more loving than that? Like, I can't imagine that sacrifice. Have you, uh, ha- have you ever had the opportunity to meet your mom? No. Uh, and it's weird. Like, when I would watch shows, um, like growing up in the Donahue show and they would have like the shows on adoption and people would like, I don't feel complete. I never had that. Like I never felt incomplete. I never felt like I was missing anything. I, for me, I guess it was like when they say you can't miss what you never had. Sure. But I also didn't have any, any anger. I just was um, like, it didn't matter. And I guess my mentality always was like, like my family is me. Mm. I didn't get along with my family growing up. I was always the one in trouble. Everything was always my fault. I was, you know, the black sheep of the family. So to me, my family, from, from always, just as long as I can remember, even as a kid, people would say your family. And I'm like, I'm right here. I am my family. So for me, I was used to being a solo. So I didn't, there wasn't anything, there was something missing, but as a child, you don't understand that. Right. But now that you're a bit older and like, like you just explained your mother going through with the pregnancy, putting her child up for adoption is an incredibly brave thing to do. And that, you know, that's the indication of an incredibly strong woman as you've gotten older has there been any feeling of like, I, I, I want to meet this person who afforded me the opportunity to, ha- to, to live my life and, and, and to do the things that I've done? No, the only, the only thing that I, that I think I would be interested in is uh, medical records. That's the, well, the only problem I have looking back on being adopted. And they handle it much differently now, and I'm so happy. But back when I was adopted, they didn't give you... Uh, like family medical history. So it made it difficult growing up because they'd say, does heart disease run in your family? Just cancer. I don't know. I don't yeah. Know. You know? Yeah. Uh, and even to this day, and now that I'm, you know, I'm 55, I'm reaching the age where I'm having like, they're like, does colorectal cancer run in your family? Like, ah, I'm proud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think if we keep looking at the branches, we're going to find colorectal cancer in a lot of these issues somewhere. So <laughs> it's inevitable. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, before we kind of dig into the past a little bit, I want to, Okay. I want to talk about a post that that on Instagram that you posted a couple days ago. Okay. And it really, really moved me. It's your utensil thinger. Oh, (laughs) and people should follow you on Instagram. It's Dave Scarpello, all one word, uh, without a space and an underscore and stuff like that. And, um, you talk about how grateful you are to have actual utensils. Where, uh, where were you like five months ago? Like, uh, what, what sort of state were you in there then before you bought your utensil thinger? Um, oh, this is where I'm going to get emotional. Uh, is it okay if I take it back a little bit further just to give some background to understand like, like how I got to that point? I want to get in the backseat of the cab and I want you to drive. Okay. Uh, turn it loose, man. <laughs> okay. All right. So, like I said, I grew up in the Germantown section of Philadelphia. It's not, it, it's like a working class. I mean, it's getting worse with the, the you know, the violence and, and all that. So, it's not a, uh, like, if you're from Germantown, you don't come from privilege. And I ne- never went hungry as a kid. I always had food, but I didn't realize that we, like, my parents did an amazing job 
that I didn't realize that I grew up poor or, you know, working class until I was an adult. But, you know, I didn't have, my parents didn't have friends at the country club that could get me the right jobs and get me into the right schools. And so everything has just kind of been a struggle. I mean, there's been a lot of good times, but I've been on welfare. I've been homeless. Um, I was on social security disability for 18 years until recently. So I've known struggle. When I got hit by the drunk driver in 2003, um, she had no car insurance, had never had a job, had been in and out of jail and on drugs most of her life. So I got no money. Like there was no settlement. I just got disabled and put on disability. And my injuries were so severe that when I applied for social security disability, everyone said the government has the most stringent, strict interpretation of what permanently disabled means. So they're like, we've seen people who have lost limbs and they'll say you're not disabled and you have to appeal it and it can take years and you have to be ready for this long fight. And because you're young, they're going to rule against you. And they ruled in my favor. Wow. I just, like, I just, I got it so easily. That had to have been incredibly emotional. It was. And I was, I don't want to say okay in the beginning. And now I'm, I'm now it's on just strictly financial terms to explain how I, you know, got to the, the utensil post the other day. Yeah. Being on social security disability, the income is very, very limited. Yeah. You gradually dip into your savings and, you start falling behind on bills. And then, you know, I had a house, I had a car because I had a, you know, a job. I was employed. I mean, I was doing good in life until I got hit by the uninsured drunk driver. Um, and that a lot of anger came from that because it changed my life because that person wasn't responsible and I'm the one that paid for it. Yeah. You start losing things and then you, if you're in my situation, I don't have any like rich relatives or friends to be like, Hey, can you like, you know, pay my bill this month? So what happened was when I would start to need repairs in the house that before it'd be like, Oh, I'll call the plumber at 350 bucks. Here you go. Now when the plumbing, like when the, when the pipes froze in the winter, I just didn't have running water. Right. And I was never, when you're on a fixed income, you're never going to, be able to get ahead to pay the bill because I only get enough so that I can eat through like I'm in survival mode from, from that point. And you just start slowly losing more and falling behind to the point where you just have to give things up. Like I, my car was paid off, but it needed a new transmission that I couldn't afford. So it sat in my driveway from 2007 until last year yeah um because i kept saying like i'm gonna get it fixed and i'm gonna drive again and it was just like no i'm not (laughs) if we're talking about a transmission that's thousands of dollars right yeah yeah and we're and we're talking about at the time when i'm needing the, the 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 transmission i'm also in like an intimate relationship with coinstar because, you know, the last week of the month, I'm like, I don't know if I have enough food to stretch me out until I get my next check. So I would like go through my pockets and my coin jars and literally be like, all right, I have $2.18. I can buy some ramen noodles. And no, I lived in survival mode for so long. And I, so eventually I lost my house. I lost my, you know, my car. It didn't work, but I had to like have that towed away. And when I, I had to get out of my house, I had nowhere to store my stuff. I mean, I and people are like, why don't you just go to like a storage place? How was I going to pay for that? And I had a and I had a full house full of stuff, which. I had more than any, I, I had become a hoarder, which is another whole branch that we can talk about. I basically, in September of last year, 
No, September of 2020. Because now that we're in 20. <laughs> they all blur together at this point, don't they? <laughs> well, well, and now we're in 2022, so it wasn't last year anymore. Where it would have been a few weeks ago. So, yeah. So in September of 2020, I found out I had like seven days to get out of the house I had been in for 20 years. Oh, my God. And it's a long story, but it's just like, the, the bottom line is I had to get out. And it was like anything that's left in the house after seven days will be considered trash and thrown away. Well, and now without without going all the way down the rabbit hole of the hoarding situation, let's just point out the fact that you hold on to those things because you think they're part of your identity and, and, and there's that enormous emotional attachment to those things because you never had anything growing up. So when people, you know, talk about clearing all that stuff out, it's not, it's not trash to you. It's, it's not junk, right? Right. And actually I, I lost a, a person that, um, that was the, the, the genesis of me becoming a hoarder in retrospect. I, I know where it happened. So I had a, is briefly, I a uh, long time ago had a girlfriend that uh, lived with me for three years, her and her daughter. Um, her daughter was six months old when we got together. You know, I raised her. She only remembers the time with me. And the girlfriend broke up with me in 2002, but her daughter continued to stay in my life because, like, I was the only, like, she knew who her father was, but she lived with me and my house was her home. So even after she broke up with me, she was like, Alyssa wants to stay. Like, can she stay with you? Yeah. Well, you don't want to take your child with you, <laughs> which is another story. But yes, I love her. I'll, I'll take her. And so for a few years after, you know, we weren't together, I was still like co-parenting. And in my mind, it was like, this is my child. Like, I know it's not my biological child, but like, yeah. I changed her diapers. I was there for first words, first steps. I took her to, you know, preschool her first day. So that was my child. And then even after my ex-girlfriend ended up getting married to her best friend's ex-fiance, the four of us used to go on vacation together. They were cheating. We didn't know it. Her daughter still lived with me even after she got married, like didn't move in with her and her husband. And by this time she's in second grade. Um, she lived with me Monday to Friday. You know, I would take her to school, pick her up, make her lunch. I was the parent during the week. Her mom got her on the weekends. I'd pick her up from school Monday afternoon. We're in like three months into second grade and I go to pick her up on Monday and she doesn't get off the school bus and I freak out. I mean, you know, Apparently, uh, my my kids not a, didn't get off the bus. Freaked out. Oh my god! I, I mean, yeah, that is my single greatest nightmare as a parent. It turns the husband calls me and was like, "F you, mm. she's never coming back." And I was like, "What?" Like stunned. And I said, "And and I said, well, like every, everything she owns, her social security is here, card, her birth certificate." all of her clothes, her school records, her immunization records. He was like, F you, throw that stuff away. We don't want it. And I, and I, that was in 2006, um, she was seven and I haven't seen her since then. So shortly after, because I had, I had raised this little beautiful little girl for six and a half years. And then she was just gone. Oh my God. And I tried to, I tried to replace her with things yeah. because I didn't have anything else. <sighs> and then it, so my house is now falling apart. The, you know, the heat stops working and I don't have running water. So now I can't have people come over and I'm like, well, it doesn't even matter that I'm a hoarder and I, you know, I just start like not picking up trash. And I'm like, well, now my house is, filled with so much trash and junk and there's no running water. Like, so for years, no one ever entered my house. And I would, I would panic if somebody picked me up and, you know, was like, Hey, I'll be at your house at six thirty, six twenty. I was outside 
because I didn't want them coming up to knock on the door. And I would always, every single time for years, when somebody would pick me up, I'd be like, God, please don't let them have to pay and ask to use the bathroom because like, I, I don't have running water. Like I, the stress of that is believable. So I, I lost everything and I didn't, I didn't have a permanent place to live. So the end of September, I find out I now have nowhere to live and I have nowhere to put my stuff. And I ended up having a, um, basically a nervous breakdown um, at the, the same time the relationship with the infamous 1344 was kind of coming to an end. And so the combination of just all that, I got overwhelmed and I uh, came really close to taking my own life. Yeah. Um, but obviously ultimately did not do that and went to an emergency room and was inpatient for 11 days. And when I got out and I was, you know, I'm in the mental hospital, I know I need to be there. And they kept telling them, because, you know, when you're in, you're at their mercy for when they decide you're ready to be released. And I kept saying, you don't understand. You have to release me by this day, not because I'm trying to get out of here. Like most people, I am losing my home. Right. If my, like, so I had that stress and. I had all these friends kind of come together and like, what are we going to do? Yep. And one woman was very forceful about like, oh, you know, enthusiastic, come live with me, come stay with me. And, uh, you know, I have a spare room and you can stay as long as you want. I don't need any rent. I have all this money. And perfect. I went there. It lasted less than a, a month. That was another nightmare. So then from there, I'm like, I'm sleeping on couches and literally with a trash bag with some clothes and toiletries in it. So like when I, when I did move, I, I did put stuff in storage, but only the basics and I had nowhere to live. I'm, I'm facing the same fixed amount from social security. That's not working. That's that's pretty, that's left me, you know, for all intents and purposes, homeless. Um, it was so crazy that I looked into trying to move into the projects of the public housing because I'm a single male with no child. The waiting list was over 12 years. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 So, so I was like, I can't even live in the freaking projects. Like why, why, like, I don't even know. I'm just going to jump off a bridge. I literally have woken up to a day where I can't live in the projects. And I'm like, like, that's, how does your life get to that point? And, you know, there, I like, there's no hope. I'm stuck. And that's why I was in survival. I'm stuck because, like, I'm in chronic pain. I have PTSD. They're telling me I can never, you know, walk again, let alone go back to work. Mm-hmm. And I have a pretty big ego and I'm pretty cocky. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I have to be fair, right? Like, I think I'm pretty self-aware. Uh, yeah. And I am. I can be obnoxious and loud and cocky and boastful. I'm just willing to outwork everybody. I don't have any – I'm not smarter than anyone else. When I joined the Cub Scouts, I'm eight years old, and I was like, I'm going to be an Eagle Scout. And everybody's like, slow your roll. <laughs> Yeah, they they were like, let's figure out how to tie a few knots, all right? <laughs> yeah, and and I did. And I ended up being an Eagle Scout at 13. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, like as soon as I could do it, I did it. And it wasn't that I knew. People were like, how did you do it? I'm like, they just told me what I had to do, and I did it. And I made the sacrifices other people weren't willing to do. Or when I was, in, I was an altar boy, in one of the Catholic schools that I eventually got kicked out of because I was, you know, my anger management and the problem child, uh, which was from the nuns and the priests beating my butt every day. Yeah, yeah. Right. But so we had vocation day and you had to come in dressed up as what you wanted to be when you grew up. You know, people had only firemen and outfits and nurses. Well, I came in a Pope outfit that I made. (laughs) 
And they were like, what are you going to be? They're like, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'm like, Pope Dave the first. And I remember the nun saying, maybe you should, same thing with the scouts. Maybe you should think about getting in the seminary first, making it through. And I said, no, sister, you don't understand. If I'm going to be a priest, I have to be the leader of the world. I assumed that this was a sarcastic vocation. That you you meant it. You you were that this was a literal aspiration of yours to be the Pope. Oh, and I thought I was destined to be the Pope because I was Italian. Because <laughs> no, at the time that was before um, John Paul II, who was Polish. So for like four hundred centuries, yeah. <laughs> you know, every Pope was Italian. So I just felt like it was my birthright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, I'm qualified. I'm getting Catholic, um, and I'm Italian. Oh, that's great. How can I not be? How can I not be? <laughs> but then I found out some of the things the Pope wasn't allowed to do. So for fifth grade vo- vocational day, I came and dressed up as a Philly starting pitcher. Okay, there you go. And I mean, because yeah. we're approaching puberty at that point when there's something that's yeah. there's something very important to a young man that he suddenly can't yes. imagine his life without. <laughs> right. Well, well, hey, I, I mean, let's let let's hang out and last year a little bit. Like, when did things turn? Like, when did you get? When did you get your job at, at Athletic and stuff? Because was was that a big piece of the puzzle to to getting things? Uh, yeah, unbelievably. So after, and this is a little bit more background, just to bring you up to to answer that question. And I'm sorry that there's not a I, I don't have a, like a short succinct answer. No, it's good. It's good. Just from like 2017, I dealt with no one. I had no interest. Um, and then I met the woman who I referred to as 1344. She's always been a very private person. And I don't want to disrespect her privacy. So that's why. And, and those numbers have a... A, a special significance between her and I that we both understand. So that if for whatever reason somebody was to show her or she saw something that I posted and it had like a hashtag 1344, yeah. she would understand that that was, you know, her. Do, you, do you think that she's seen it? Um, no, um, I'm currently blocked on all. Okay. Uh, social media, which I, I didn't know that was going to happen, but eventually it did. And I'm not, uh, to be honest, I'm not angry about it. Have you ever seen the movie Eternal, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind by chance? No, and somebody told me, you're not, like, you're the third person that's... Don't, 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 uh, uh, in, this, in this case, because I bring it up because the, the crux of the movie, and th- these aren't spoilers, you know it right off the top, Okay. That there's this technology, this business that is able to basically erase your memories of people so that you can spare yourself the pain of remembering somebody, whether it be somebody who you lost, who passed away, or oftentimes it's a relationship breakup. It's like out of self-preservation, sometimes we have to block somebody just because we can't deal with the emotional attachment to that loss. You know what I mean? So so don't watch it, but that's what it reminds me of is that I have exes who are blocked, not because of anything that they did or I did, but I simply can't I can't be reminded of something that I that I'm that I already actively grieved and I don't want to anymore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so uh, the reason I'm not mad or hurt about it is that I don't think there's no anger like I'll just say that, like, there was no cheating. There was no, like, lying or, like, she just felt that she needed to continue her life and move forward without me because my life was chaotic. I understand it. And it was probably seeing, you know, me on social media, I'm assuming it was difficult. So I think that's why I was blocked, not out of anger or to to hurt me. For me, though, and it's funny because a friend of mine asked me last week, they were like, if you could do like Men in Black where they just like flick the 
the pen, would you want her erased from your memory because you're so heartbroken? And I was like, not for one second. And this is the, this is the worst thing mentally that I've ever dealt with in my life as the most pain I've ever been in, but I wouldn't, I know it sounds weird, but like, I wouldn't want to erase it because if, if she gets erased, then my, then I'm erased because I'm not, I'm not here in Bridgeport. I'm not working for athletic brewing company. You know, when you talk about that, you wouldn't be who you are today without having known her and had those experiences. I mean, we are who we are today because, because of what's happened to us over the years for me. And I know this is somewhat apples to oranges, but if I hadn't been, you know, a closet drinker and an alcoholic for so many years, I wouldn't be sitting here doing a podcast and connecting with folks and being right. part of this, this beautiful community. So yeah, I, I wouldn't erase that for anything. So I, I feel you. And I, I mean, it's the same thing with some of, you know, some of my exes too. It's like, there's somebody who I learned from that I needed to be a better listener. There's somebody who I learned from that convinced me that it's, you know, that it's okay to not be okay. Like, we we borrow from all of those experiences. Like, can you imagine how two dimensional we would be if we never fell in love or we never experienced hardship? Right, like that. So that's where looking back, when, when you know anyone is like, "Could you erase her? Would you have any regrets?" And I was like, "Does the way I feel today hurt? Do I do I cry every day at some point?" Yeah, but the but what a blessing that I spent time like with the person I feel like I was put here to be with. Like even if it didn't last, I experienced it. And yeah, I think most people live and die and never get a second of that. And I like I had that. And like there hasn't I don't want to say there hasn't been love in my life. I think it's, so many people have let me down and betrayed me that for me, it just was extra special to have that, like feel that, that type of love. And, and I, I think the most telling thing that I've said to anybody, and, and I've actually posted this as a meme, was, so my background is in, um, the entertainment industry, music. I was a radio DJ, a rapper. I performed at the Apollo. Um, I've opened for Run DMC and Public Enemy. I've, you know, I've been on tour. And I and and what I said was, I've been on stage in front of thousands of people, but I've never felt more seen than I did when she would look at me. That's beautiful. That is truly beautiful. Yeah, there's just I, the way she would look at me is why I've had some recent success. Because, and I mentioned earlier about me being cocky and boastful and, you know, have a big ego and, and all that stuff. So, like, you know, when they're, like I said, you want to be a priest? I want to be the Pope. You want to be a Boy Scout? I want to be an Eagle Scout. So I never lacked for for confidence when they were like, you're never going to walk again. I was like, ha. And 11 days later, like, I, I did walk out. I walked out with a walker, but I was just like, no, I, like, I can, you know, I can do a lot. I'm strong. I'm resilient. And I really believe that. And that's what got me to where I did life and my success. And I just outworked everybody. But the thought of at 55 years old, after 18 years on social security disability for chronic pain, post-traumatic stress, anxiety, and depression, that I'm just, I'm going to go back to work full-time, impossible. Just completely impossible. And add on the fact that now we're in the fall of 2020. Oh, and we're in the middle of a global pandemic when some people aren't even leaving the house. But me, the 55-year-old guy, well, 54 at the time, with an 18-year gap in my resume, 
during a global pandemic, I'm going to get a job. Who the F is going to hire me? <laughs> yeah, no, and, yeah. and because I said, like, I'm self-aware. And I said, if I got a resume and it was like, best job, 2003, get trash. I would. And I have friends that are recruiters. I'm like, yeah, dude, I would, you'd be right in the trash pile. They're like, you wouldn't even, they're like, we wouldn't even have to put you in a trash pile the way that the computers read keywords. And they're like, yeah, they're like, it would just, it would, it would just filter you out. They wouldn't even reach their desk. Right. <laughs> right. And I'm like, and, and, and I understood that. And, you know, I'm like, I haven't had a day without physical pain since 1992 when I got, you know, assaulted. So I'm like, eight hours a day. And so it was like, let's not even talk about the hurdle of doing it, finding somebody to give me that opportunity. But, uh, you know, I had, I'd been pretty much single, lived by myself for 18 years. And then I met this woman who was initially just a friend. And I thought, and then I don't even know how it happened it was like how did we go from friends to more than friends like it was so organic and natural and i knew really really quick i was like oh crap <laughs> like i'm like i'm in trouble i'm like i'm like i'm gonna have to tell people i'm not retired anymore like, <laughs> <laughs> hey hey jordan Favre, every you know all the greats have done it <laughs> Right. I was like, what am I going to put out a, a tweet that says, I'm back, period? <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and it was literally like, I don't even know how it happened. I met her, and then I loved her. And I knew. I just knew. And the the reason she's the key is because what I said was, all those things that I've achieved on my own in my life, that was the one thing that was just, you know, it, it would be like saying, you know, hey, you think you could train next week to be ready to like go to Mars on a spaceship? <laughs> Impossible. I mean, that's how ridiculous the, the, the thought of that happening was. And it's not that I didn't want to do it, but I felt that I couldn't do it. And that who's going to give me an opportunity? And she said to me during this conversation, she was like, don't you understand? Like, you're Dave Scarpello. You, you can do whatever you want. You know, and I said to her, I said, I get it. I know I've done. And she said, you, you run marathon. Like, you're a marathon runner. She was like, you aren't supposed to be able to walk. And she was like, you can do whatever you want. And for some reason, and I don't even think it, she didn't say anything to me that other people hadn't said in the past, but because it was her voice and her eyes were looking at me and she was my person, it, I heard, like, I heard her. Tell me about, like, the timing. Like, when did you apply for the job? When did you get the job? Was, was that after you and 1344 broke up? We had this conversation about me trying to go back to work, like, seriously in the middle of November. Uh, oh, I know the part that I was, that, that I, that I, I forgot about, but briefly, uh, I had been on pain, uh, opioids for years um, from the chronic pain. They put me on methadone at one point. Didn't tell me that it rots your teeth. I lost almost, I lost almost all of my teeth. So on top of like being embarrassed about my house, I wouldn't open my mouth because I was, Oh my God. Yeah. Missing teeth that fell out. Not that I did anything wrong, but a doctor told me, Oh, that's a myth. Don't worry about it. And then by the time they realized that, that that was the, the problem, it, it, it was too late. And they were like, you need implants. You can't get dentures. Like they just have to come out. How much does it cost? It starts at 10,000. I'm on social security disability. I'm stuck. And that was one of my main points that 1344 was who's going to hire me. Yeah. Like I'm going to do an interview and they're going to see my, they don't want me rep 
representing them. And I felt bad. I felt embarrassed. I was embarrassed around, around her. She was the first person I actually told about my teeth. I mean, obviously I had to. I couldn't just show up and be like, hey, surprise. Yeah. And I didn't tell her about it at first because I was embarrassed, but I, I had to um, eventually um, because we had met him online. So uh, I knew we were going to meet. And so I didn't have that confidence. And she just said, I, you're, it doesn't matter. You're a beautiful looking man. You're attractive. And she was like, your smile doesn't, your teeth don't define you. And she was like, and they can be fixed. And she was like, we'll figure out a way to get you the implants. And I was like, they started $10,000. <laughs> and I was like, so I'm trapped. Like, I can't apply for jobs until I have, like, I can speak. And I wouldn't do, uh, I would do podcasts, but I wouldn't do, like, I turned down acting roles. I turned down, uh, you know, anything that had, video because i was like i don't want them to do it close it so i had that stress and even though i felt ugly she still saw like beauty in me when i was like like this guy's got messed up teeth he's on disability and she fell in love with me anyway yeah like so even after she broke up with me we still you know we're still in touch for a while and then Early December, she helps me put together the resume. And then I applied to Athletic because I, I had even said, I don't know anybody in Bridgeport. I don't own a car. I don't even know if I could physically, like, do they have, I mean, I know, I'm sure they have buses in Bridgeport. I don't know if they go anywhere near, I'm not familiar with the area. Yeah. Um, and she, got back to me five minutes later here's the bus that you need to get there like it's it's doable no like she was my rock yeah. so i and then on december 2nd of 2020 is when i first applied to athletic and man when i hit that send button <laughs> oh my heart and it was an accomplishment for me just to get to the point where i'm like i'm 54 years old I've been on disability for 18 years and I just applied for a full-time job. No kidding. Which would mean that I had to voluntarily relinquish my disability benefits, which was just, I was just proud that I got to that point alone. Yeah. So I apply in December. I didn't hear anything back. I, and now I'm still kind of in that, uh, athletic universe because I'm still serving as an ambassador. Right. Um, and, and so I'm dealing with employees and they know I want to work there and they want me to work there. Mm -hmm. So it was just a matter of waiting until something that I was like, I'm qualified or I could do that job Yeah, came up and then something else came up in June and I reached out to a woman from human resources on LinkedIn. Thank you, 1344, for hooking up with LinkedIn and said, hey, I, I don't mean to be pushy. I don't know if I'm contacting the right person, but I uh, applied for a job, uh, you know, months ago and didn't hear anything. And now I applied for this job last week. I just want to make sure, like, I've got the right, like, I'm not doing something wrong. Yeah. And she said, you know, send me your resume directly. And I did. And then I got an interview for the position that I applied for in June. Uh, they ultimately went with someone else. And I was just, and again, it was a moment. I was like, man, I went from where I was at to I actually had an interview with my dream company. Yeah. Um, and that was a, uh, an accomplishment. And, and I didn't get it. You know, and I was like, well, I tried. Mm -hmm. And a week later, they called me back. <laughs> and, you, and they were like, you're doing the roller coaster. That's, got, that's wild. Right. And, right. and they're like, hey, we're wondering if you'd be interested in, like, another position. And I was like, yes. And they're like, we didn't tell you what it is. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, 
I love it. Right. Yeah. I, like, I don't care. I'll be the janitor. Like, I, we're, we're going to have you stand on the corner in like a foam can <laughs> and like spin a sign for athletic brewing. Wait, I wanted to work there so badly that I was like, how can I stand out from the other applicants and the other ambassadors? Because all the ambassadors want to work there too. Of course. So I actually went in a recording studio and like did a rap about athletic brewing company and made it like a like no like i went in like a real recording studio and had a friend who really directs music videos like and i uploaded it and athletic saw it and they were like you know yeah like got their attention so they asked me if i wanted to interview for this other job now it's like the beginning of july and then I had like 5,000 interviews, it seemed like, but there were only like three. Because every time I'm like, did I get the job? And they were like, you made it to the next. What do you, what do you mean the next round? Just tell me if I have the friggin' job or not. My, my nerves are like, my head's about to explode. So I, I get through, and then I run my first ultra marathon on August. Uh, third was that the 12 hour endurance one that i saw yeah the loopy looper race in camden new jersey yeah so i'm running that in the beginning of august and i'm like oh this will probably be my last race before i leave if i get the job because at this point i think like it's look you know it's, i think it's just a formality at this point and i get rhabdomyolysis during the race um, it was a side effect of a medicine they gave me for foot fungus. So my kidney started to shut down and I got to mile 32.75 and just fell over and I couldn't get up. And so they had the ambulance come on the course and take me to the emergency room. And so now I'm on like Dilaudid and all the uh, fentanyl and all these painkillers. And they're like, oh, well, the good news is you're not going to have to go on dialysis. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Wow. What, what a consolation prize. <laughs> so when they, so when they finally called me, I'm like, you know what? This is just like perfect for my life is that they're going to call me and officially offer me this job. Yeah. And I'm going to accept it from the IC, from an ICU bed. <laughs> Did that and that's literally like, yeah, like the phone rang and I'm like, please don't let the, the button go off saying like code green room four. And they're like, where are you at? Like, because uh, I'm in the hospital, I almost died. But yes, I'm, I'll start working for your company right away. <laughs> so yeah, so August 7th is when I got the word. And then my first day was September 7th, the day after Labor Day. And I know that uh, athletic, one of the reasons why it's a dream job for you is because I know that while you have pointed out that you don't have the gene of alcoholism, you are in fact sober. You see the power of sobriety and how it's helped kind of unlock your life, your life as a human being, but also as an athlete too. And it's enhanced your performance. So I want to take a moment and talk about the place where I went through rehab, which is Gateway Foundation in Aurora, Illinois. If drugs or alcohol are starting to take over your life, it's time to get honest with yourself and get help. These days, many people are at home or out of work, and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with stress and anxiety is stronger than ever before, right? Stop using now before it's too late. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient as well as virtual programs, so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your own home. Don't wait to get help that you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free confidential consultation or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. Okay, Dave, so I'm sorry, as you were saying, it was so crazy. Yesterday, I worked 11 hours. I didn't. So not only am I doing the eight hours physically, yeah. we have voluntary overtime. So I worked from like 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. yesterday. Yeah. 
and I got a car and I saw that it's got heated seats, baby. I saw that. You <laughs> so you got the car, the the massive investment, and you have the utensil thingy. Talk about little things that privileged people like me would find insignificant. Right. And to you, man, it's 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 the fucking world. That's that's amazing. Yeah. So so because I had to to move within seven days. So basically I didn't have things. And when I came here, all I really owned was my clothes, toiletries, and like a few boxes of memories. Yeah. Pretty light. I moved by myself with, you know, just things were in trash bags. Um, So I was able to move by myself because I really didn't own anything. Like, you know, no furniture, no bed, no, none of that stuff. So when I got into my apartment, I was like, well, how am I going to eat? I don't have a, like, I'm like, wow, I don't have like a fork or, a, you know, so I went and bought like plastic forks and knives and how am I going to cook? Like I ate, I ate out because I'm like, I have a stove now, but I don't have any like pots or pans. Yeah. And I had bought red beans and rice and I was like, oh, I was in the mood to have that one day, maybe like two months ago. And I pulled the beans out of the cabinet and I had that one of those moments. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I, I can't eat these beans because I don't own a can opener anymore. Yeah. But I was able to walk to Marshall's and buy a can opener. And it was two ninety nine. And I walked back to my apartment with my chest puffed out. Like I had money in my pocket <laughs> to buy a can opener so I can have my, you know, my beans and rice. Yeah. I mean, you, you've, you've gone from, as you were talking about before, scraping together like $2 and change. I, I find you remarkable. I find you incredible and just incredibly inspiring. So thank you for what you do. And let's do some, I mean, let's do some awesome things together. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I, you know, we got through a lot of amazing stuff and we also managed to figure out that Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is just a reboot of Men in Black. So that was good to make. (laughs) But man, it's just good to know you. It's just genuinely good to know you and to have you in my life, man. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'm sure we're going to catch up real soon. Definitely. Thank you. All right. Cheers, Dave. Take care. All right, gang. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much to Dave Scarpello for hopping on the podcast. Next week, we're going to have award-winning author Nita Sweeney on to talk about, she's got a new book coming out and I am in the middle of reading her book, Depression Hates a Moving Target. I'm hooked. It's not often that that I can relate to the people saying that you can't put a book down, but that's how I am with it right now. So I can't wait to talk to her about the book and about her mission to tackle the stigma surrounding mental illness and how she was able to come back from the brink by means of running. All right. Until then, until we catch up with you next week, folks, just remember if, if it feels like things are falling apart outside of this space right here, we are always coming together. I love you so much, and we'll catch up soon. Peace.